Hi, I'm Seb Coe, and welcome to my Extraordinary Tales and Extraordinary Times podcast. Over the past weeks, we've been joined by some notable game changers from the world of sport, and I don't use that epithet lightly. My guest today falls more than comfortably into that bracket. He's a man fated as the architect of the greatest revolution in British sporting history. In December 2008, the 14 medals, including eight golds, achieved by British cycling in the Beijing Olympic Games, won him BBC Sports Personality of the Year's Coach Award, an award he went on to win again after the 2012 Games in London. After guiding British cycling to 12 medals at those Games, he was awarded with a knighthood for services to cycling and the London Games. During his triumphs with British cycling, he also became the manager of the new British-based professional team, Team Sky. In this role, he oversaw Bradley Wiggins, Chris Froome's and Guy Wright Thomas's victories in 2012, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 and 18 Tour de France. So Dave Brailsford, welcome to the hot seat. <laughs> Thanks, Seb. Good to see you. Thank you. A cycling revolution, is that how you would describe it? Oh, good question. Good question. I, th- I think... Um... In terms of, I think if you looked at a sport, when uh, as a general kind of where did the sport stand in society in Britain? Maybe when, uh, when, when certainly when I first got involved as a youngster in North Wales, um, it was very much, uh, you know, it's one of the smaller sports. It, it wasn't, um, it wasn't a big sport in the UK, that's for sure. Um, and I guess from there to now, I think when we see, you know, I'm, I'm here in my favourite little cafe in, in Derbyshire which unfortunately is closed for the time being, but is where I ride to. But the lanes over the years have got fuller and fuller of cyclists and it's become, um, you know, a bigger and bigger sport, I guess. And in that sense, I think there has been a revolution in terms of number of participants and how it's seen within the, uh, within, within the country. I think you can probably break that down into the two components, which you quite rightly pointed out. I mean, there's, there's the massive strides that we made in elite performance, but I also noticed part, just simple participation. You know, when I came back from the Beijing Games, it struck me that we'd sort of hit a tipping point. I remember, you know, pulling out of my drive on a Sunday morning. I'd often try, have to sit there for five minutes while, you know, legions uh, of cyclists came by. And I guess you must be as happy about the increase in participation off the back of the elite performances that you've choreographed as, as anything, really. Yeah, I must say, um, you know, it's, it's obviously great to, to, you know, you know yourself, you know, when you're involved in elite, the elite side of it and you go and you, there's medals and championships and Tour de France's and, 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 you know, you get some great successes in that, in that sense. You, you know, if you really love the sport that you've kind of grown up with, which, whether that's athletics or, I don't know, canoeing or, or, or cycling, you do feel an affinity with it, and certainly when I when I grew up, it was um, it was a much smaller uh, sport than it is now, and and it's nice that when when you see so much go to so few, as is in the case in elite sport, somehow at some point in time you you kind of think, well, how does that cycle itself back into society, you know? And I think and I think it, it stacks up if um, if everything kind of there's there's, there's a whole wheel of it. To, to, to excuse a pun, but. But so the participation side grows as well as the performances increase. And I think that's, that's been a huge satisfaction, I must say. And, and to see the sport where it is now compared to where I found it when I was a youngster um, gives me as much pleasure, if I'm really honest, as the, uh, as, as the successes along the way. What, what you may not 
be aware of, Dave, is that my coach was my father and my father, it was athletics is what he did, but actually his passion was cycling. He rode for Hearn Hill Wheelers and he was actually a pretty reasonable uh, a, a pretty reasonable cyclist. He was once asked at the end of my career whether he had any regrets. And he said, yeah, my son never won the Tour de France. I wish he'd known you at the time. He probably could have helped me on that. On You'd have had a good shot, said, to be honest. I think you've just got the, you've got the right build. You've got, you've got all the raw ingredients were there, that's for sure. Now you tell me. Now you tell me. It's never too late. But he, he always made the point that your sport actually... You know, your sport chooses you. You don't choose your sport. Was cycling always in your genes? No, it wasn't actually. It was at my you know, when I was a youngster. I, like I said, I grew up um, very Welsh part of, uh, of of North Wales. But you you were originally from Derbyshire, which is where you're doing this podcast from. Well, no, well, yes, yes, and no. So I was my, my dad worked in a school in Alastair, just outside um, uh, Derby, and he was a teacher. And I was born in Derby. Um, in 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 Alastair, and then, uh, but when I was one year old, one one years old, my 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 father, an absolutely passionate mountaineer, he's a climber, and he was from Sheffield actually, and um, you know with that whole Sheffield. All the good people are Dave. All the good people. Yeah, are. exactly, exactly. Yeah, but in that Joe Brown, you know Chris Bonington kind of era, um, a lot of the a lot of the rock climbers then were heading down towards North Wales. Um, to climb down there, and particularly Thamberis, Thamberis Pass, Tramada. So we moved, when I was one years old, we moved as a family to North Wales and I started nursery there at, at two and it was very Welsh speaking. And so I grew up in, um, as, as with Welsh as my first language until I was, what, well, you know, until I moved away. So there, it, it was very much uh, football, cricket, not so much rugby actually, but, you know, football and cricket were the two main sports and, and, and I loved it. And we... You know, there was a lot of inter inter village rival, a bit like the the little villages around. You know, the the Baslows and the Hatherses of the of, of know them well. You know, they they'll have the football team, and there's a fierce rivalry in, in, within those you know small villages against each other. And um, so, so I grew up there playing football, really. And uh, my dad was off doing his climbing, and he was you know a bit, a bit the odd one out, and it was like a little it was a slate mining village where we grew up, and. Um, and he he liked cycling, so he got riding his bike. And then, but when I was younger, we had two pubs in our village where I grew up, and we'd sort of hang out as you know, as young lads outside the pubs. And I used to say to him, I said, "Look, I'm not being funny, but if you're going out looking like that, and you ride past us, I'm over with my mates, and you dare wave at me, or, or, or try, try, I'm not going to, I'm not going to send them know who you are. I'm not going to recognise you, you know." And then I hurt my knee. What happened was that I had um, I, um, I had a, a cruciate. Uh, problem in, in my in my knee playing football, and as I started to recover from that, the uh, the, the physio that I had there said, "Look, you should get out on your bike with your dad, and uh, that'll help you help you recover." So, was, which is what I did, and then I just realised that wow, I really I like this. It was um, so what, what what appealed actually was the rather than being in a team um, and where the team could do you know, great, and you didn't do very well, um, you know, or you did really, really well and the team didn't do so well. It kind of the relationship between your own performance and the overall team results was, wasn't was necessarily sort of linear, directly related. And I liked it that you know, on a bike or if you're doing an individual like, like yourself, you go out and you perform and you're, you, you're there on your own. And, and if, you're, if you're good, you do well. And if you don't do so well or you don't apply yourself, then you don't do so well. And I was very attracted to the um, 
I like the racing, but I really like the training side of it as well. It was grueling. It was tough. It, it felt to me as if it was one of the, you know, like like your sports. It's a hard sport. And and when I was young and growing up, I wanted to, I, I don't know why, but I wanted to prove myself. And I thought, actually, this is a tough sport and I'm going to apply myself to this. And, um, you know, I've got quite a big work ethic and I just really believe. Was, it, was the proving yourself a partly an element of moving out of an environment you knew into something that was quite different in North Wales? Yeah, I, th- I think I think when I look back now, so I think what happened to me, I, I was um, uh, obviously my parents were English and we we moved into a very Welsh community. You know, you were the only Northerner in the village. Yeah, 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 yeah. So and in the end, I learned to obviously I grew up there. In, I went to school there, so you know I spoke Welsh more than I spoke English, really. And I taught, you know, I taught at school in Welsh. Um, all my mates are Welsh. And, um, you know, like I say, it was, a, it was a small village at the foot of a slate mine. And all, everybody worked in a, in a slate mine. And, I, I, and I'd come home and I, my dad, who was running off doing mountaineering, he didn't speak Welsh. He was a sort of, a, you know, it, and, and I just wanted to fit in, you know. I, I really, yeah. really, I wanted to feel part of the community. And it was a tight community. And it's brass band, it's at its snooker club, and all the a carnival every year. And all those little things, when I look back, they were fundamental. They were the, the, the real sort of, they, they held that community together. And I wanted, I loved that. I wanted to be part of it. And so when it came to, you know, you know, I got the, I didn't, I didn't, I just wanted to prove that I wanted to be there. And I wanted to prove myself because of that, I think. And that drove me a lot as a youngster. And um, so that's potentially why I like the sports. And I like the outdoors. I love the mountains. I love the lakes. I love, yeah. I just, I just grew up in that environment, and um, so. So, so if we, if we, if we continue a little bit with this backstory, which is fascinating, was I, I actually, I've always been a great believer that we're shaped in sport, not just by the sport we choose, but how we actually get there, the confluences, the yeah. influences in our lives. Yeah. So let's let's delve a little bit further into the backstory because you sort of up sticks. You left a an apprentice draftsman's role and you just went off and rode for as as became an a, a sponsored amateur uh in France where and then yeah. learnt French. Yeah. Yeah, so so basically what it, I got to you know I got to 16 I didn't enjoy school. I liked the sporting bit of school and I could, I, was, I was capable, you know, I, I, it wasn't that I wasn't um capable but I just didn't enjoy the environment. It was um, it wasn't great looking back. But um so I left school when I was 16 and uh, I got a job as a draftsman, an apprentice draftsman, went and did a day release kind of course and started doing engineering. But then I realised that my passion for cycling was, you know, it really, really had grasped me. And this idea of this thing called the Tour de France and this crazy race, so I thought, wow, I want to go and try and have a go at that. So in the end, I decided to, to leave I up sticks. I got a single ticket to Grenoble, had a bike and a cardboard box, rucksack, and off I went. And... Um, you know, I didn't think it would be a problem somehow. I think I was a bit, you know, wet behind the tabs with <laughs> from growing up where I was. And I've got well, off I went to France, and it was like, oh my god, what have I done here? You know, and um, you described it as the loneliest one of the loneliest periods in your life. It was lonely. I was ever so lonely. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I was determined, and um, so I went to the end of a bike race basically, and looked for the nicest kits as they all came there with the cars and everything. And the ones with the nicest kits went up and asked them, can I race for you? And they just sort of like, what? You know, kind of about laughing, really. And I kept on persevering. And, and the one guy, a guy called Pierre Rivery, actually, um, I think he felt sorry for me. And he just said, look, if you can get yourself over to St. Etienne, uh, you can train with us and, and see how he goes. So that's what I did. I went over there, turned up. They didn't expect to see me, I don't think. And then I ended up staying there for three years with them. 
and um, and and had a tremendous. I mean, it was it was tremendous. I had a tremendous time. Very very lonely to start with, and then I, so I was desperate to learn French and communicate, which I, which I managed to do because I was so driven to do it. And 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 for a while, it was just the you know it was the best thing ever. I thought, and then I realised that unfortunately, actually, effort alone um, wasn't going to get me there. Um, and then nobody tried harder than I did, that's for sure. But um, unfortunately, I was never going to. I just didn't have the. I didn't have the the heart and lungs and, and all the rest of it. And um, and so I thought, right, okay, this isn't going to actually happen. So I better recalibrate. And in the meantime, um, uh, sports science was emerging. Sports nutrition was emerging. You know, that kind of time when it was just all starting to come through. And, yeah. And it was it was an exciting time, I thought, that, you know, and, and, and I, I was an avid reader. I loved it. And then having not been so good at school or enjoyed school anyway, I absolutely couldn't get enough of all of this. And I really liked the sports psychology side of it. So I thought, right, I'll have to go back to Britain. I want to get an education now. So I went back, got into a university course to do sports psychology, sports science. And I absolutely, I was like, went there. I didn't want to go out and do all the, all the students. I didn't want to go out and do any of that kind of social. I, I just wanted to learn. And I, I, I loved it. I loved every single minute. You're a le- lecturer's dream, Dave. You're a lecturer's dream. There, there are not that many of you out there. <laughs> yeah. But the way, the way you're describing this, it strikes me as what you're really saying is this was the formative period in your life where this was the incubator. And it's from, it's from this period that you basically drew everything that took you on to, uh, to, 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 to British Cycling and then Team Sky and now, of course, Ineos. Yeah, and whilst, of course, my, um, you know, what I didn't realise maybe when I was younger in Wales, um, you know, my, my father was a, he, he was an international, you know, he was, he was an ice climber, basically, and he became a connoisseur in the uh, Ecran region of France. So every summer he'd go there, he'd work, work there all summer, um, and, he, and he, you know, he wrote guidebooks, and he became the first ever president, a British president of the International Mountain Guides, which is like the IAAF of... Um, yeah, it is. Absolutely, guys. it is. Yeah. But because there's such a strong culture, obviously, in the Alpine nations and, and the Dolomites, et cetera, that normally it's, it's, it's French, Swiss, German uh, dominated. But he became the first British guy to be the, uh, the president, which, um, which I, I look back on now. I, didn't, I don't think I realised it at the time, but a lot of the sitting around and the discussions and how they talked about the, you know, the, the nature of the sport and the, 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 like the politics of, the, of, of what they were doing, as well as the nuances of all the climbing. And um, I spent a long time down in France with, with the other guides and they'd have dinner and they'd talk about snow, you know, every single little snow conditions and routes and the stories and being in that kind of community environment, I think left a big impression on me as a, as a, as a young guy, you know. And um, it, was a, it was like that the, the guys, you know, it's life and death for them. So if they, if they make a wrong move, the consequences are massive. And it's a hard life, you know, they live a hard life and they take it very, very seriously. Um, and I liked all of the gear and the equipment and the planning and the, I don't know, it's, they had fun with it, but they were very serious about it as well. So I think out of that melting pot, <laughs> I kind of emerged, really. I, I, I'm interested in, in, in your talking about the, uh, the, the degree you did, sports science, exercise science uh, uh, and psychology. And my coach... Every coach I've ever worked with actually has always conceded that they've probably given greater weight in a funny sort of way to the psychology. They just actually fundamentally believe that it's, as, uh, it's probably more important to understand the people you're working with 
than necessarily the technology around them. Uh, I'm interested in in that balance between the the yeah. the exact science and the psychology. Do you give it equal weighting, or do you sort of shift drift towards one um, particular? I think particular they both contribute. I think they both contribute, but um, and the science uh, can be amazing. But the science alone, unless somebody, unless you can apply the science into practical everyday behaviour, and the athlete buys it, believes in it, or the coach buys it and believes in it, you're never actually going to get it into a, a consistent, um, you know, a, well, consistent behaviour really. And and I'm, you know, so I'm, I'm a big believer that you've got to believe in what you're doing. And for an athlete in particular, they have to have belief in what they're doing. Um, and so I think there's this, the, the psychological component is is a must. I think you know it's it's in the end we're asking and we're expecting human beings to do exceptional things and perform at an exceptional level and make an exceptional sacrifice in order to be able to do that. And that 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 comes from within. It doesn't. It's not a scientific thing that comes from outside. It's that comes from within. And then the science and the, uh, you know, all the other areas can inform that and refine that and hopefully increase the, the chances or the probability of that performance happening. But it's an intrinsic thing that drives it. You know, you were driven, you know, it came from inside. It was, you know, it was, and yes, you, you guide and supported training methods and all the rest of it. However, there is no denying, I think, that the hunger and the desire to train hard and work hard and perform is the sort of the bedrock of all of it. And, and I think the, it's interesting. I talked to Tim Kerrison, who's a, you know, the, the head coach at Escom. I worked with Tim a long time, and just terrific guy. And we talk a lot about the, you know, there's the, there's doing the world-class basics, isn't there? You know, you do everything right and you do it consistently, you do it for a long time. It'll get you very, to a very high level. But in the end, there's that little bit of discretionary performance. You know, you go and perform, and you perform well at your championships. You perform, but there's every you can get that little bit extra, um, and that's the champion. You know, where where can you get that discretionary bit of performance on a regular basis, or at least when it matters? Um, and I think when we look at our roles and think about what we're we here to do, yes, we're here to make sure that. There's efficiencies and people understand the basics and they can do all the world-class basics, not just do them well, but do them brilliantly. And then on top, you've got this discretionary bit of performance, which is what we, we should be doing, helping people squeeze that little extra out. And that's the staff, that's that's the riders, that's everybody in the team. And that is psychology, I think. And that is about how somebody feels and that, that attitude. And so I, I couldn't agree more that it's the, it's the prerequisite of, um, of, of great performance. So, so you you've sort of reached that moment of candor, where you've decided you're not you're not going to be the next Eddie Merckx. Yeah, and oh, giving up. No, well, but you know that that in itself is that in itself is quite a big moment, isn't it? it, it you know, yeah, when yeah, when yeah. you know something that you've you've aimed at. And you just have to make an honest internal assessment, which is probably why you went on to do what you did as well as you did, because of that innate honesty of the decision yeah. at that point. You then join British Cycling in, in 98 as a consultant. And look, you know, I, I don't want this to be a sort of and then and then and then. But, you know, you, you, you joined as programme director and then you become CEO. You talked about that discretionary difference 
Was that for you the beginning of the marginal gains space that you yeah, yeah. use so effectively? So, so I think in the first instance, I think, um, you know, there's obviously this, when you go into an organisation, you, you've got to have the, you've got to have the fundamentals, you've got to have the basic, it, are we doing the simple things really, really well? And, and in order to do that, it's not easy to do that. I mean, it sounds easy, but, and, and everybody can get the concept of it. But you then you need to be quite efficient. Things need to be organised. You need to have the right equipment and the right time. You need facility to train on. You need all the simple things that you can, you know, you need good nutrition, etc. And you start to build that up on a regular and consistent basis. And um, at the start of pre cycling, it was, it was all new. I mean, and you'll remember well, you know, when the lottery funding came along, it was pivotal for, for sports in yeah. this country. It was it was it was the biggest game changer. I think it was. It was huge. Global sports, you know. I don't think anybody. I don't think. I've I've often thought, Dave, that it was probably of of the legacy that every British Prime Minister grapples with or tries to find. John Major's creation of that national lottery was probably the biggest social change that we've witnessed in the last fifty years. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's huge the impact, and and for those of us who lived through that and and were working in the in in sport at that time, you know, we we saw the, the you know the magnitude, it was, and it was just a mentality shift, wasn't it? Really, you know, and and um, amazing what a bit of investment can do. In, in well, athletics was a good example of that. We came out of '96 uh, with one medal on the track. Yeah. I mean, yeah, exactly. it, it was well. It was what well, no gold medals, but that was it. I mean, it was probably our poorest, our poorest games ever. Yeah. Uh, and then by two thousand, we were sort of, and we were, I don't know, thirtieth, fortieth on the medals table. Uh, and by two thousand, we were sitting back in the top ten again. I mean, it was a paradigm shift. It was, it was, and, and I think in so many dimensions. Uh, you know, if you go back to to when I was growing, when I was growing up, the Olympics were about one off. You know, individual performers who were unbelievable, and were ever like, like yourself, you know, and, and you'd have three or four kind of Olympians, as it were, that you'd really get behind. You think, wow, okay, Pinson Redgrave, you know, and all those kind of, you know, yourself and all the other kind of boardmen, to be fair, in cycling. And, um, and you think, okay, that, that's what the Olympics were about. You'd watch all the kind of, all these unbelievable kind of athletes, the world's athletes, and they're every now and again, you know, the British jersey had come out, you know, and it was just every now and again, wasn't it? You know, have to wait a couple of days and then somebody come out. But I think the big shift here, uh, and, and I, I know, you know, how, how I felt about it. I think the big shift was that as a competitor, you had your one-offs, you had the big names, you had the Daily Thompsons, you had people like me and Steve, but we didn't come through the system. No, I no, think exactly. what I think. the National Lottery did was it provided the wherewithal yeah. for federations like British Cycling under your stewardship. And, and you're always very really clear. You've, all, you've actually brought me up sharp a couple of times when I've introduced you as a coach. And you say, no, I'm not a coach. I'm a performance director. I choreograph. I pull all these yeah, things no, together. Yeah. Uh, and you've never actually claimed coaching status you you, you're very clear that there is a very very different function but I think the big difference was we always felt that anything we achieved was despite the federation I think you've brought a generation of cyclists through and and rowers have come through in exactly the same system where actually their first point of contact now is to look to the federation and think actually I'm in a system and I don't have to operate 
on my own in an ad hoc way where I'm going to have to go overseas and, and beg, steal and borrow. And if you think, you know, there was the there was the, the building of the system, wasn't there? You know, those first five, ten, you know, maybe the first two Olympic cycles, Sydney to Athens, Athens to Beijing, where we're all investing. We're all trying to get our heads around, you know, the new programs and the English Institute of Sport and and how it all worked and, you know, the how we were all approaching it. But I think now, you know, that you've got to bear in mind two things, really. One was slowly but surely, you know, we're all different running at different paces, as it were. But slowly but surely, we start to cross-pollinate. And I think UK sport deserve a lot of credit, actually, um, because there was, there was even though it's clunky to start with, there was this, you know, what, the, what they were doing in rowing came over into cycling. What cycling was doing maybe translated in triathlon. Triathlon translated in the swimming parts into swimming. And the performance directors would get together and say, OK, what philosophy are you, what's your, what's your performance philosophy? What's the DNA that we're using here? And, and as we all know, you know, the... The what it takes to win kind of performance approach started to develop as a coherent program, and then I think fair play to to Peaky when he went into uh, UK sports, he pulled that into a, a framework that all sports could get behind and apply. So so then we sort of had a sort of a consistency in the models we were running, and actually we were all starting to learn from each other. So the operating systems are a bit like your phone getting an update, you know, like new information, updates, and off we go. And that, that's been applied throughout the, the UK system now. So I think across the system, instead of having one sport or one athlete, then to maybe one sport or another sport doing pretty well, now we've got a consistent approach across nearly all of the sports. And it's phenomenal, the level that I've reached, phenomenal. And I think it's, it's, it's it, I guess when you're young now, that there are young, young athletes who are going to the games or go to this games, next games, in, hopefully it happens next year. And they won't, they won't have known sport without lottery funding. Which yeah. is, which is unbelievable, really, isn't it? <laughs> it's, but, and, and great. No, it's it's fantastic. For people of our vintage, that's an incredible concept. Yeah. But but you're absolutely right. And the marginal gains, you know, it's a concept that you you've defined and, and in large part created. I mean, it, it's something that actually you live to, whether it's in a system or not. I always remember my father having. He's an engineer. He had exactly the same mindset that you deal with all the things that you have control over. And then if you improve on them, then collectively it will come together. And even to the point where at the age of 14 or 15, we'd be in the Peak District, he'd be following the car, he'd make me get into the car for a protracted long, you know, a downhill stretch because as an engineer, he didn't like the biomechanical impact that was probably going to have on yeah, yeah. knees and, yeah. and, and future yeah. injuries. So in one way or another, everybody is sort of thinking like that, but you in a way codified it. It then almost it was sort of the zeitgeist of the time because industrialists started referring to it. I remember listening to education ministers talking about marginal yeah. gains and getting the most out yeah. of kids. And then, like all these things, the, the, the shine, the luster sort of comes off it a, a little bit and, and people then start questioning, well, are we going too far? Are we, you know, is it, are we asking too much of the athletes? Where, where's the balance in all that, Dave? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a good question. And, and I think the, I guess things change, don't they? You have to adapt and change with time. And, uh, you know, marginal gains was a concept, which for us, we've got a big goal to try and reach. It was a way of, of really energising people and thinking, actually, you know, we can get better by next week, actually, if we do something small. We can take small steps and it'll get us a long way if we do it. And it's a concept that people could, 
buy into and it created momentum it created a we're, we're on a journey we're moving forward and it did encourage certain behaviors it did encourage a, a kind of collective mentality if you like um but you had to have all the basics right in the first place you couldn't just kind of do that and, and not have the you know the fundamentals in place and i think what happened people got obviously we were very successful and and um you know i made i made no um you know, so no secret of, of how we how we tried to, to to do it, and I think people got a little bit carried away maybe and thought actually this is it, this is the magic wand now. We just do this, and the rest will look after itself. And of course, it won't. You know, there's, more, there's a little bit more to it than that. Um, and and I think things are fashionable, and they, it, it worked at a time. It was the right thing for the time. It moved us forward. Do I talk about marginal gains every day, all day now, in the team that I'm in now? No. You have to. You know, the philosophy, the the idea that. You still have to, you know, try and collectively get the best out of everything is is just as important as ever. But what happens is you adapt and you learn and, you you know, you, you move your methods and you, you get a method that's right for the right person. Otherwise, these things, they get, you know, they get a bit stale. They get tried and tested. So you've got to move on to the next thing. You've got to innovate. And, um, you know, it became all open source. And, you know, the world's changed massively with technology and, and the way startups and the whole of the startup kind of mentality and, how does that all fit into sport and how does that relate to younger people now who are coming into the, into sport and the world that they live in? You've got to give them something that's in tune and attuned to their thinking that's going to inspire them. So the, I think as a performance director or a, you know, somebody who's managing or orchestrating, you know, I'm an orchestra conductor in the end, but you, know, the, you adapt and you, you take this uh, learning from, from around you and you say, okay, now this could be right for what I'm seeing here. So, I wouldn't say I dropped the whole thing, but but equally, I think you've got to you've got to move with the times and amend and develop, and um, and that's what I spend a lot of my time thinking about, basically. And and the issue of that sort of obsession leading potentially to cutting ethical corners. You know, my sports had yeah. had its challenges. Yeah, yeah. You've yeah, had the challenges. Yeah, we've yeah, both yeah. we've both been in you know we've both yeah. been in the public gaze for for yeah, issues yeah. around the. You know the application of science and technological support around that. This is a this is a difficult landscape at the moment. I think well, I think it's interesting, isn't it? Because obviously, when we started out with the the um, with the Olympic program, it was no stone unturned, medal or nothing. You know, funding's all about. If you get more funding if you medal, you won't. You get lose funding if you don't. And I must say, um, as a young guy, when I was then, you know, I was driven. You know, I wanted to. I wanted to. I like the first time ever things, you know, I wanted to go to the Olympics and smash it, you know. <laughs> I was I was highly, highly motivated to, to support other people, but still, you know, I was massively driven by that. And it chimed with me. I'm 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 not gonna lie. I liked it. It was it was like it, there was no there was no um marketing, there was no fun engagement, there was no it was just here's a here's a pound and make that pound work as hard as you can to winning a medal. And that I loved that. I, I absolutely, it was the right thing at the right time. And I, I bought in as much. I bought that um, approach as much as anybody. And we pushed, and we pushed hard, you know. But um, there's there's two sides of the uh, how hard you push. I think because obviously there's an ethical consideration. Do you cheat? Basically, you know. I think where, where's the line between cheating and not cheating? And we've been accused of, you know, and certainly I've been accused of taking. You know, taking it too far and going over the line and trying to uh, get a performance edge by going into sort of grey areas, as people would like to call it, etc. And um, in my mind, 
I've always been clear that there's a, I, I, I try to determine where the line is and I'll go right up to it. Now, you know, I make no bones about it. And that's where I've been. You know, that's what I would approach it. But I wouldn't go over it. I really wouldn't go over it. And I think within that, if it's not well-defined, then what, where my line is, what we're doing, and making sure that we're staying on the right side of the rules and absolutely doing it the right way. How, how did you deal individually with that? And there was a massive, massive interest, massive exposure, select committee hearings. Yeah. Or how, you know, I, 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 you were quoted, actually, I was reading, reading up before this interview, tough times don't last, tough people do. Was that your guiding yeah. principle through that? Yeah, I think that's, that came from my childhood, really, wasn't it? You know, and, and and seeing guys going up to those mines and and the hardship they they endured, and um, and and they dealt with that with good humour and good grace, you know. And and uh, it always struck me that that was the case. We spend a lot of time worrying about things that never happen, and uh, you know, and, and and we, you know, I like the whole sort of resilience. When I think of resilience, you know, I like the tough times don't last. They're not can't last forever. The like pandemic's not going to last forever. You know, but but if you're tough inside, tough people do. You know, you can get through these things. And I think in your deepest, darkest moments, worth reminding yourself of that because it's not. It feels like a, a you're going into a dark tunnel. There's no end. You can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. I prefer sort of night and day as an analogy. You know, you're going into the, the, the night comes and you go into the darkest part of the night, and you think, wow, okay, it's not going to get any darker than this. But you know, if you wait, then dawn appears, a little bit of glimmer of light, and then the sun comes out, and we're off into another day. And I, and I like that analogy. It chimes with me, you know. And I like the the bamboo, you know. So resilient people, they can they can bend. You know, it's tough, so they bend like bamboo, and then they can bounce back. Whereas other people, maybe like a bit more like a twig rather than bamboo, they bend under the pressure and they snap. And and so I'm so not, modern modern earthquake architecture. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So and, and for a lot of our athletes, you know, they 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 have tough times, and you think actually, I talk to them a lot. You know, right, bamboo. You know, <laughs> remember, bend like bamboo, and, and bam, one, bam, one, one of the things we are always telling our athletes, you know, cyclists, runners, whatever they happen to be, is you know, is to spend a little bit of time visualizing their own success, visualizing where they sit in the landscape, probably spending a little bit of time understanding who came before you, understanding your history is actually quite important. Could you, at that point that you started to assume responsibilities in, in British cycling, could you visualise British cyclists dominating an Olympic Games? Could you visualise a Brit winning the Tour de France? Uh, well, um, I've, I've always been, you know, I've, I've got a very... What's the word? I, 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 I don't think it's ambitious, but I, I believe in, you know, I believe things can be done. I really do. And I think if we're going to do something, I'd like to go to the highest possible level of what could be done. And so why can't, why can't we do that? You know, why can't, why can't it be us? Why can't it be Britain? Why can't, why, it's going to be somebody. So why not us? You know, there's no difference between Europe and all these countries doing really well in, in the Olympics. You look at their kind of how many people are there, what's the, the sort of demographics, socioeconomic kind of, profiling and all the rest of it you think there is no difference so surely we can do this too and so that side of me has always been um you know I, i've always gone to that sort of the furthest i can reach in terms of uh, aspiration i suppose um could, could we do it I, I don't know but i think if you apply certain processes and you approach things in a certain way and you keep persevering then actually with the right people in that, then uh, I think you can, why can't we be the best in the world compared to anybody? There's, no, there's nobody, we're all humans, aren't we, in the end? 
And so, yeah, so I think, why not? You know, so it's always like just, I wouldn't say I knew it happened, but I, I believed it could happen for sure. Yeah. I, I'm interested because you choreograph a system, a structure that dominates over three Olympic Games effectively and the legacy I'm, I actually believe we'll, we'll see us into Tokyo whenever that yeah. takes place. You then move to Team Sky and you dominate that landscape and Team Sky becomes Ineos. But actually you've had an interesting subset here, which I do want to uh, just to probe for a bit, because of course in your role at Ineos, you also then end up choreographing one of the biggest moments in my sport, which was the, one of the Everests. It's breaking the two-hour barrier for the the marathon with Eliud Kipchoge in Vienna just just a few yeah. months ago, a very emotional moment for for all of us. I'm interested though that you've sort of you 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 know it's it's the same concept, but what is it that you took from cycling into that uh, that yeah. arena that produced such a startling impact? Well, I, I think uh, it was. Um... I mean, I th- we chatted, didn't we? Right at the very start, if you remember, we had a we did, yeah, and, and 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 we were chatting about it. And when um, Jim uh, Radcliffe, a kindred spirit, I think you would say, <laughs> yeah, when he uh, when he suggested, you know, he said, actually, could we have a look at this? I thought, okay, well, I don't really know the sport of um, of marathon running, um, but but we do know about the principles of performance and trying to support high high performance and. And I loved it, to be honest, because it did two things for me. I always wanted to work and see whether whether it's possible to work in another sport. You know, there's a lot of talk about transfer of skills and, you know, going into work in a different sport. And it gave me that opportunity while staying in cycling, giving me an opportunity in another sport. And rather than going and winning a, a, a medal or a race or a, a sort of championship or something like that, it was, like you say, it was a, it was a moment in history, which is quite unique, you know. And, and um, so... When I was asked, I thought, "Wow, this is this is this is such an exceptional opportunity because it fills those it ticks those two boxes." So, but okay, how are we going to approach this? So, first things first, it was all about uh, you know I, I really applied myself. Um, I did nothing. I really, really studied uh, marathon running, um, and I found that, that who I considered to be you know very quickly to, try to identify the world's experts and and um, and listen to them and, and taught myself quickly about um, about all the science and running and what's been done before and why is there anything that is there anything that really surprised you um i think the finesse really i think there's a lot of you know you get into a you can get into a kind of an overall understanding of something relatively quickly but when you really look at it you start to think about how much energy do you lose um on what radius of corner for example as, as a you know so if you're running around a shallow corner you know, how much of your energy instead of pushing you forward is being used to scrub you around the corner. And the tighter the corner, how much more, how much further you're going to run running in a straight line than if you were running around a corner. And and how, how would you therefore optimize a course for this type of challenge when you said actually the best would be to run in a straight line for a long time because you're going to propel yourself forward. You're not going to lose any energy. So it's the fastest you're going to go, go with the energy that and, and uh, whatever you've got. And those types of questions I was quite interested in. Uh, the impact of gradient, uh, the impact of heat, uh, thermoregulation. You know, the the obviously the body heats up as you go in th- through a through a marathon, and therefore, you know, what impact does that has as a 
detriment to performance? What impact does fueling have? What impact does hydration have? Humidity. So all of those kind of environmental conditions. And then you look at the the aerodynamics, you know, so actually they're going pretty fast, these guys, to be fair. I mean, incredible, incredible how quickly they can run. Um, and, of course, the, the air punching a hole in the air is going to is going to slow you down. So if you took away the air, so you were, weren't running in, in any air, what happens? You know, on the one hand, your resistance is, is less, so you're going to go further for the same energy, but you're going to get hotter because you haven't got the thermoregulation of the evaporation to cool you down. So you're kind of dialing one thing up, but you're dialing another thing down. And that's that's what that's what that's what performance is. It's trade offs. So you've got to figure out where all the trade offs are. And of course, you had um, you had uh, the opportunity then of having a, a team of runners to support and pacers. We had a timing system, and 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 you'll know you know the cornerstone of, of of a lot of sporting performance is the pacing strategy. Entirely, entirely, isn't it? You know, and 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 having the the mental discipline of you know, sticking to a, being able to deliver a pacing strategy, which is on the limit, right on the limit. You think, God, I'm not going to be able to do this for, for two hours, but actually you can, but it's just beautifully paced. And then what kind of profile do you want? Do you want to go and die off or do you want to go and hang on or do you want to do an even? Do you want to do a negative? You know, and all of that science of all of that in marathon running was was new to me. So we, we got stuck into all of that. And, um, and of course, in the same at the same time, uh, and his team, his coaches, who, who were absolutely fundamental. So you can't rock that. You know, you, the coach-athlete relationship is sacrosanct. And so he had to say, okay, well, here's his group. They're doing really well. Let's have a look and see if we can, we, could, we, could we do anything to support them? But you don't, you're definitely not going to say you can do anything to make them feel uncomfortable because that would rock the foundations what he was doing. And then, of course, Valentine True and um, Jos Hermans, who obviously work with uh, Elwood and, and, and they, they were fundamental to the project. So there was a, a quite a big piece around pulling the project team together. And unlike most marathons where you go and, you know, you turn up at the event, the event's put on and, and you run the event. Of course, in this one, we could create the event wherever we wanted to. So we got, uh, you know, we got Hugh Brasher and his team from the London <laughs> Marathon I mean, Hugh's terrific guy. I mean, fantastic. I love the book. Force of nature. Yeah, oh, great guy. And funny enough, his dad, Hugh's dad, and my dad were were, were both climbers, and they knew. Yeah, it was, Chris was a was a great mountaineer. In fact, on the eve on the eve of the four minute mile, uh, Bannister, Brasher, and Chataway all went climbing in the Cairngorms. Yeah, yeah, it's brilliant. Isn't it? It's just fantastic, you know. So Hugh and I hit it off. And um, so then we had to decide, okay, well, you've got the, you put the event on um, and then you're going to have to have the performance, but you can't allow the event to dictate. Uh, you, so you can't say, okay, well, all the media, I mean, we need all this media and they need all their trucks over there. So we're going to have to go over here so they can park all the trucks. So like, no, we can't. It's got to be a performance first. So the performance has to come first and we'll fit everything else around it from an event point of view. And then we start to set off and think, well, where, where are we going to do this? You know, and, and the weather and can it work? And so we did a big search around the world for a, for a course. We, we basically, what we did first was we got some great uh, guys in from the, uh, one of the guys from the sailing team, actually, Ben's in your sailing team came in and we scanned the world to say, where are the best? We needed the envelope of conditions, low humidity, you know, the humidity to be right, no rain, didn't want any wind. And of course, the temperature couldn't be too high. So anywhere between sort of seven and 11, 12 degrees. So we scanned the world and looked where that was most likely to happen. 
in October on the date we wanted to run and to, to increase the probabilities. And once we had that, we then set about, which, which fell on sort of the Germany-Austria area, we then set about looking for a course which would hit our criteria as well. So we did, we came up with quite a few courses and then we analysed the courses to see, you know, what the modelling was in terms of uh, pacing. And, and then lo and behold, we were kind of, we're getting a bit worried about it. Look, look, looked at quite a lot of the car racing circuits in Germany and various other, you know, Monza where, where the Nike. Well, the, the, the previous attempt was at Monza, wasn't it? That's right. Yeah, that's right. And, um, and in the end, uh, one of the guys we know said, have you, have you looked at the, uh, the Austrian, the Vienna Marathon course as a part of that? And so we went over there and once we saw that, that the, the course there, I hope it was I'm obvious. Right. It was just a dream scenario. So they, and they embraced it. The mayor of Vienna absolutely embraced it. You know, brilliant. And they couldn't have been better. So all of a sudden, all, all the pieces of the jigsaw started to come together. And then so we could do, okay, well, look, you know, let's just take a fresh look at the, let's say the challenge of the air. So how are we going to reduce the aerodynamics? What, what could happen aerodynamically? And of course, we do a lot of aerodynamic work in cycling. And so we went to the wind tunnel, went to our guys, aerodynamic guys, and they actually said, look, fresh pair of eyes. We know nothing. I know nothing about the, the running. But how would you make this? How could you achieve this? What would you do? And, of course, they come back with things that you'd never even dreamt of, you know, like never even thought of. And I guess it's one of those things where maybe if you're uncoupled from a sport. So I can remember McLaren coming to look at um, the team pursuit in the Olympics, you know, our team pursuit where you change and go to the back. And, and they said, the first one of the first questions they said was, why did they only do half a lap? And we said, mm, well, probably because that's what they've always done, to be honest. <laughs> and they said, why did they always go to the back? Why can't they just swap at the front, maybe? And you could have two guys swapping at the front, and then these two guys could wait. And then they could come through. At the, and we thought, yeah, we hadn't thought of that either, you know. And we've been doing this for a fair amount of time. And it was just people from the outside coming in and looking at it as a fresh problem and coming up with yeah. ideas which you wouldn't really yeah. consider. And likewise, the you know, so the the guys came, the aerodynamic guys came in and said, actually, have you ever considered running in a in a V formation rather than how you normally do? And we're like, well, the, the running guys were as an arrowhead. Yeah, yeah, and 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 to start with, I think you know that you always get the um, well, running's not like that. You know, it's not cycling. You know, it's quite funny actually because I got I got a lot of that. You know, well, they you, you would do as a runner. <laughs> and I think, okay, yeah, 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 I get that, and, and I, I I totally accept that. But then, of course, they came up with a we came up with a, a, bit of a different formation and how the guys could could swap in and out and actually what was going on with that formation, how it all worked, and um, pieced it all together. So, well, on, on behalf of my sport, thank you. And congratulations because, no, because, no, no, because thank you. It's, it's one. No, no, it's one. It's one of the great moments. I'd love to leave you in athletics, Dave. Genuinely, probably for the rest of your life. Actually, given the way yeah. you've sort of approached it, but I'm, I'm going to for for the sort of concluding bit of this conversation. We could go on forever. I'm going to take you back to cycling, and I'm going to take you back to the Tour de France. I mean, it's it's delayed until September. That's what we all hope uh, and you were a little outspoken at the beginning of, of that process where, as we were going into lockdown that you wanted to make sure that everything was going to be done if if it was going to take place that would protect your riders and protect the team yeah. and the support uh, issues are you comfortable now that they can do it in that way yeah I, th I think we've come a long way um in the last 10 weeks or so and and um you know the 
I suppose one of the things, you know, right back from, um, you know, Athens time, everybody recognised we trained for four years here and what happens if we get sick? You know, and you go into an environment in the, in the athlete village where you've got a lot of people and it only takes one person to get ill and, and shake hands with somebody else or lift button or sit next to somebody and cough on them and, and, and that's it, it's all down the pan. And we got a bit paranoid about that. So we started to think about, you know, our hygiene protocols and hygiene things. And I actually had somebody in the in Beijing and their sole job was to stand by the lift button and the stair banister. And every time somebody went in a lift in our, in our village block, they cleaned the, they had the hand sanitizer, they cleaned the lift button and they cleaned the railings uh, because we knew that actually we had, the, you know, the, everything, everything that everybody knows now about washing hands. And we got a, we had the surgeon come in to teach us how to wash hands and clean things and all the all the practices we're seeing now became like a part of winning for us because it's so mission critical and then as we went into the tour de france you spend three weeks in a bus with a group of guys and by the final week their immune systems are shot so they're really really low and of course if somebody gets a bit of a bug or an illness there it passes throughout the whole team with and, and you lose so it, be, it was for us um this we, we created a program called zero days which was the avoidance of illness and injury and losing zero days to it. And so our hygiene program um, was, was was really good. We brought people who cleaned th- hospital theatres um, after operations out to our race and to ask them to look at our environment and see how, how we were doing our hygiene protocols. And, and then you realise, actually, it's all about behaviour. And really, you know, virus isn't going to save us. Changing behaviour is going to save us if, from, this, um, from this pandemic. So I think, you know, taking, taking all that... Um, into the round, it all sort of goes into that pot of trying to trying to educate us and, and, and move us forward. And of course, we're very accustomed to all of that. So when I saw some of the practices um, at the start of the pandemic, where we pulled ourselves out of a, one of the big races before it happened, we thought this isn't this is nuts. You know, this is this isn't going to wash. And Cheltenham and the football at the start. I had my head in my hands. I thought, God, these are, it's naive. You know, it's so naive. It's so wrong what's going on. I couldn't understand why the government didn't do anything, you know, sooner. And when you live in a world where you're very conscious about all of this stuff, you know, it's like, guys, it doesn't really matter. that You, you, you don't have to wait. And, and, and I think they were so worried about putting some consequences on, the, on society in terms of locking it down. They were worried about that. And they left it too late in the worrying of that. It should have just gone whack straight away. And people would have followed. People would have followed if it was done the right way and you had a bit of behavioural psychology in there, for sure. So that concerned me. But where we are now is that I think everybody has now come up to speed. Everybody is buying in. You know, all of the hygiene protocols uh, are really on point, I think, now. And we've seen from the football um, and various other kind of uh, sports that are coming back quickly that it can be done well. And I'm, I'm now a strong, strong advocate. Uh, and Ineos, through its uh, UK, German... Uh, and, and, and French uh, uh, operations have been, have been producing a million bottles of hand sanitizer. Yeah. yeah, it was great, great. I mean, it's brilliant. I mean, Jim, you know, he's, a, he's a amazing, amazing uh, uh, character. And um, when, it, when obviously this started happening, they make all the raw materials to, for hand sanitizer. So he, he kind of set everybody the challenge. Said, right, okay, we've got ten days. We're going to produce hand sanitizer, make some new production lines. And we're going to give it to the hospitals free of charge to help frontline workers. And in the meantime, we couldn't race. So, you know, we, we were chatting on the phone. And I said, look, we, we really, what can we do to help? You know, let's do something. We can't race. And then he phoned back and said, okay, look, 
we're going to do this. You can look after all the distributions and all the hospitals in England, Wales, Northern Ireland and, and Scotland, France, Germany, Belgium. And <laughs> OK, so we did that. And um, and now we're in a position where they, they've actually supported and created uh, 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 Ineos Hygienics, actually, a new business. Um, and I think this sector, this hygiene sector, is just going to explode. It's going to be part of our lives. And certainly in sport, you know, the, the hygiene in sport now is going to be a big deal. And it feels like we're at the start of... Remember when LucasAid was the only sports nutrition product and you've gone yeah. from a bottle of LucasAid to a billion-pound industry where we are now? And I think it feels a little bit like the, like the sports hygienic sector just about to, to start now. It's going to, it has to. It, it has to in order to maintain that. Yeah, we're actually working on a programme at the minute where we're looking at taking our the knowledge that we've had from a practitioner perspective, and we've been doing this for 15, 20 years, um, combining that with obviously what with the guys at Formula One and Ben and his team, um, and actually letting you know sharing our programme, which we call Zero Days, actually making that... Um, try to see whether we can actually make it into a national kind of initiative where we help people come back to playing sports safely. Well, let, let's take it back to this year's race. You've, you've just identified all the challenges around pandemic and, and all the other things in order just to get there. But you've actually got the other challenge that uh, you've got. You've got Chris Froome, who has recovered from some pretty horrendous injuries that, you know, are heads were in our hands uh, when when we witnessed that and and Garrint has had his own challenges the 34 and 33 respectively you're going to win again definitely going to try and I think it's the first time uh, we've ever gone with or any team I think has gone with three previous winners of um, of the race so we've got three yellow jersey riders all going together and of course the challenge is whether we can be stronger together um, and whether you know they've, they've raced in, you know they've raced and won it themselves. You know they race as individuals and they've had a lot of success themselves. And of course, just giving that up and saying, okay, well, I will just be a team player and I'll just help you or help you. That that needs to be worked through, and that that's um, that's not an easy thing to do. Um, so I think we collectively, if we if we play it right, it optimises the chances of one of them winning quite substantially. But if we play it wrong and we race each other and end up in a situation like that, then we minimise our chances massively. And there's, a, you know, there are different parts of their careers. You know, Egan's young. He won last year. He's on, you know, he's on the up. His trajectory is, is upwards. Geraint and uh, Chris are both in, you know, coming towards the mid-30s. Um, Geraint was second last year, first year before. Chris is the best Grand Tour rider of the, uh, maybe ever. And, um, you know, he's looking to win his fifth. But obviously had his crash, and um, so the dynamics are quite different between all of them. But pulling them together and, and bringing it into a collective is the challenge. But um, the synthesis of sport and psychology. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And and I think if you can use that strength, then we do succeed as a team. And if we end up um, not being able to pull it all together and use that as a strength, um, then we'll have failed as a team. I think. Dave, I think. Everybody wishes you well on, on this particular on this particular question. Let me thank you for sharing some extraordinary insights with us that actually are insights that go way way beyond your sport or my sport. I think there are some some really interesting thoughts there for anybody that is going to listen to this podcast. But I'm I'm indebted to you. Thank you so much. No, not at all. Not at all. Absolute pleasure. We'll speak Absolutely. soon. Thank you very much. 
You've been listening to Extraordinary Tales in Extraordinary Times, brought to you by CSN 